Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. And, uh, you know, the Hebrew scriptures present God as both perfectly just and unfailingly merciful, both at the same time. That's what we've been learning about. We spent three weeks talking about uh, and learning about God's being just and his call upon our lives um, to act justly. And now uh, we're into our second week of uh, part two, which is all about uh, mercy. And um, I, I'm tempted to kind of try to do a, a bit of a review. Josh, the last two Sundays, he did a bit of a review, but you know, we're five weeks uh, into this nine week series and there's four weeks left to go. And at some point, uh, I, I, I just uh, hope, I hope that you're able to track with us and to make those connections so that we don't have to keep going back too much because we want to make sure we have a good time um, moving forward in our study in this last half of this uh, spiritual growth campaign that we're doing together. So I hope that you're able to do that because we, uh, we're thinking about uh, what it means to be a good human. What does it mean to be a good human? Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I hope, we're not going to put it on the screen this morning at all because by now I really hope that you have it committed to memory. Uh, may, depending on the version, uh, scripture version you're using, uh, I, my memory is usually a mixture of King James and, and uh, a few other modern uh, translations. But uh, uh, it says there, he has told you or he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to, what? Act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. And I guess if I, if I was trying to summarize what we've uh, covered so far in a sentence, I, I think I, it, it would probably be something like, God expects you and I to act justly and to love mercy because he is at the same time perfectly just and unfailingly merciful. Uh, God, God is infinite, remember that. God is infinite, so he doesn't possess any of his attributes in measure. God is infinitely just. He is infinitely merciful. Um, but as Josh pointed out last week, we struggle with that. We struggle to see how both of those things can be true. While we may not always see them as maybe as opposites, but we at least see them as kind of mutually exclusive. That is to say that you can't be both. You have to be one or the other. Um, the simple example that Josh gave us last week, uh, you know, if there's an, uh, an offense uh, between you and I, one of us can get justice uh, if the other does not get mercy. Um, and one of us can get mercy if the other doesn't get justice. Uh, so one of us can get one or the other, <laughs> but neither of us can get both. How can that possibly be? How can justice and mercy exist together? And that's really, uh, I think, a, a biblical mystery. In the devotional writings, 
on day 23, which I think, I don't know if that was, what day is this in our series? I don't even remember what it would be. 20, 20, are we 29? Yeah, yeah. So on day 23 this past week, I mentioned uh, in, the, in the writings there that, you know, we think of the Trinity as a great biblical mystery. How can God be both one and, be, and, and yet be three at the same time? And, and uh, that is a great biblical mystery, uh, but the Bible teaches that. And I think that this, um, this is also a great biblical mystery in a sense. How can God be both perfectly just and at the same time be endlessly merciful? And the answer to biblical mysteries, as near as I've been able to figure out in my uh, short life, is that's just how great God is. You know, it says in the, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, it says, uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As high as, as, high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And um, we're far from being the first ones to struggle with this, right? We are, we are not the first people to struggle with this idea how, how, how it can be both. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, they struggled with it as well. Um, and what did they do? What did, uh, what did they do with this seeming paradox or contradiction um, um, well, they, they try to choose between the two. Because if you can't have both, you know, then you're kind of feeling like you're forced to choose between the two, right? And so they, that's what they did. They, they tried to choose. And uh, um, they felt it was working for them, their choice, until Jesus showed up. Um, now, you might think they would have chosen mercy, right? Um, but they chose justice. Why would they do that? Why would the religious leaders of Jesus' day choose justice and, and, and more or less uh, ignore uh, God's mercy and the commands to be merciful? Uh, I think Josh... Basically, last week when he when he when he he said that made this statement, I think it really gives us insight into why why that would happen. He he said we want justice until we think we need mercy. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day chose justice over mercy, and in doing so, they lost out on both justice and mercy. And that becomes perfectly clear when Jesus showed up on the scene and he was a full expression of both. So if you will join me just in a quick word of prayer right now, we're going to get into the gospel according to John together this morning and look at, um, look at a, a few passages, but one passage in particular. But will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today and spend this time together and to turn and open your word together and to hear what you would have to say to us today from your word and just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be quickening our minds, giving us the ability to understand. Shed light, Lord, on your truth this morning so that we might understand how this, how this does work. Not just so that we might understand, but so that we might act justly and love mercy. Lord, help us to not only to understand uh, these things from your word today, but help us, Lord, to apply them in our lives. We 
pray that you would uh, do this for uh, our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, before we go to uh, uh, John chapter 8, which is where I want for us to go today, uh, spend our time together, I want to just take a, take a quick look with me at John chapter 1. We looked at this passage a few weeks back when we were talking about um, how uh, for justice to exist, uh, the truth must exist, and, and uh, how the Word of God uses the metaphor of light to represent truth. But John chapter 1, we're, I just want to look at the first three verses of John chapter 1 and then a couple of verses later on in that same chapter. John chapter 1, verse, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then down, if you drop down to verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then um, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember that statement. That will be important when we get to John chapter 8 in a few moments. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, keep a few things in mind here as we move forward. Uh, Jesus is the Word made flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. He is, according to Hebrews chapter 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus would say to Thomas at one point, later on in the Gospel of John, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's John chapter 5. And he said in John chapter 8, later on in John chapter 8, beyond the text we're going to be in today, he said, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You and I can't say that, can we? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The point being that, that Jesus is a manifestation uh, of, uh, of, of God. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the exact radiance of the glory of God, according to Hebrews chapter 1. So following logically from all this, what would we expect to see when we uh, uh, observe Jesus in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts? Um, we should expect to see a full demonstration of both the perfect justice of God and yet at the same time the unfailing mercy of God. So hold on to that thought and think about this. What do we see? When you read the gospel accounts, when you read them and when you reread them, what do you see? When you see the, uh, the Lord Jesus demonstrating mercy and compassion over and over and over again at every turn. Uh, and his, his actions are amazing. Um, and it's an astonishing thing to see. It's, it is astonishing. I want to quote um, Dane Ortland, who wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly here uh, a year or two ago. And this is a quote from his, 
his book, he says, when we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, what stands out most strongly? Yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and longings, Matthew 5, 17. Yes, he is one whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear, aware of their sinfulness, Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Yes, he is a mighty teacher, one whose authority outstripped even that of the religious PhDs of his day, Mark 1, 22. And to diminish any of these things is to step outside of the vital historic orthodoxy, which is another word for truth. But the dominant note, now listen to what he says, but the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. He was known as a friend of sinners. That was his reputation that he earned by his actions. Uh, Dane Orland says that Jesus gravitates towards the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, and the undeserving. What do you think about that? How significant is that? Jesus not only taught love and mercy at every turn, but he modeled it consistently without fail, even all the way to his death on the cross where he paid the ultimate price for your sin and mine, satisfying the perfect justice of God and extending endless mercy to sinners like you and me. So go... Come with me to John chapter 8 this morning. If you want to turn to John chapter 8, that's where we're going to spend, uh, spend our time together this morning. And we want to look at one incident. I want to look at one incident from the life of Jesus that involves a woman who has become infamously known as the woman taken in adultery. John chapter 8. Now, as you turn there to John chapter 8, you'll notice a, uh, a, a note in your Bible. So take note of the note, Okay. At the beginning of John chapter 8, it says there that John chapter 7 verse 53 to John chapter 8 verse 11 is not found here in the oldest manuscripts. And that's because in the oldest manuscript, this story uh, shows up in other places in John instead. Sometimes it even shows up in the book of Luke, and sometimes it doesn't show up at all. And there is a consensus among uh, conservative evangelical scholars that uh, this account that we're reading today was not, in fact, written by John. And there is good textual evidence to support that conviction that this was not written as part of John's original uh, uh, gospel account, uh, but that it was added later by an editor. However, and this is really important, while we, uh, we don't really know for sure who wrote this or where it belongs, there is a consensus among evangelical conservative scholars that it, it is an authentic account from the life of Jesus because it has all the markings of authenticity and it's entirely consistent with the rest of what we know about what Jesus said and what he did. 
consider, for example, uh, a similar account in Luke chapter 7 where a woman washed Jesus' feet uh, with her tears. And uh, actually, that's in our devotional readings coming up as well. Day 37 is on that passage. And it's a similar situation. Uh, the parallels between these two, these two women um, and, and the response that they received from Jesus. Um, but as near as we know, that woman hadn't become a, a pawn in the hands of the powerful to advance their own agenda, and she hadn't been uh, set up and trapped and dragged in front of a, of a large group for public shaming, like this woman is in our text today. We're just going to read that in just a moment. But when I was researching for today's uh, sermon time, uh, one of the things that I came across was a TED Talk, a recent TED Talk uh, that Monica Lewinsky did, where she talks about what it was like to go through immense public shaming. Uh, Fascinating to hear her talk about what that experience was like for her and to hear her reflections back on it today. Um, John chapter 8, the woman taken in adultery is the common designator for this passage. I would like to read uh, the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And in verse 6 it says, This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, the first thought we have when we read this usually is the first thought we should have probably, which is, where's the guy, right? Because it takes two, right? And, uh, of course, we know that this was a setup. We know it was a a trap. It was entrapment for her, for sure. But uh, we know it was a trap set for Jesus, Because the text says so, right in the text. It says that they did this because they were trying to trip him up. It was a setup. 
And, and they were trying to trap Jesus all the time, right? This is, this is, this is uh, kind of exemplary of the, of the usual kind of thing, you know? Uh, I think especially if you read um, Mark chapter 11 and 12 over and over again, the week of the Passion Week, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, and, they, and the different groups would come at him, the Pharisees and then the Sadducees and then the Herodians, they all had a turn at it. And remember, I can't remember which group it was. I think it might have been the Pharisees who said, you know, uh, is it lawful to pay or should we pay taxes to Caesar? Do you remember, remember that? They were, and they were doing this because they thought they had these ways that they could, that they could set them up. And uh, this one here was probably, they thought they had done their, maybe their best work here because they, they, in their minds, they were pretty sure that this trap was escape proof because there could not possibly be a way out for Jesus on this one. And the reason they thought it was escape proof was because they were convinced that justice and mercy could not exist together at the same time. And you, you have to know, they've been watching him, right? This incident is not an isolated incident. They've been watching Jesus. They'd, they'd, they watched him like, a, like hawks, every move. Um, and over and over again, what did they see? Well, they saw him showing mercy. They saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they accused him of being a friend of sinners. They, they were scandalized by his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And they could see, they watched over and over again that Jesus was just, he wasn't into the whole condemnation thing. And they thought they had an airtight case here because they had caught her right in the act. That's very descriptive, isn't it? I don't even like to think about what that scenario, how that scenario would have played out. It's pretty despicable all the way around. Such a sordid uh, and, and ugly scenario here. So take a look and take note at their question and how they framed it. They said, the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? In other words, it's very clear what would be the just thing. It's very clear what justice is here. It's very clear, therefore, what would be the right thing. But what do you say, Jesus? It's a trap. It's a trap set by hypocritical religious leaders. But it is also a scenario that plays out every day in your life and mine. Maybe not in such graphic terms, but think about it. Every day for us, many times a day, in some in smaller ways, in some bigger ways, we too are faced with the question of whether we will de demand justice or whether we will show mercy. It might be something seemingly uh, as seemingly benign as holding a grudge 
or developing a critical attitude towards someone someone or towards a group of people, maybe, perhaps. It might be something uh, as acidic as gossip or uh, some form of retaliation. Character assassination is a really common one. Or vengeance. And we're all, we're all inconsistent <laughs> because, as we, we've been pointing out, when we're offended, we want justice. But when we offend, we want mercy. But what, what happens when someone thinks that they don't need mercy? What happens when someone thinks that, that their screw-ups are not bad enough to be considered a real problem? I think it's important here as we work our way through this passage that we understand that these men, they didn't think of themselves as perfect. Sometimes we get, the, we get that idea in our head that these guys thought that they were, that they were sinless. And that's not exactly the way it works. Um, that would take, a, that would take a, 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 a particular kind of, uh, of crazy, wouldn't it? For a person to think of themselves as, as perfect as sinless, never have ever, ever in their lives ever had a wrong thought or never done anything that wasn't absolutely perfect? They didn't think that. Who thinks that? So what, so what was going on in the hearts and minds of these, of these men? As we study scripture and we, and we, and we study the profile on, on, on these people, what, what becomes apparent to us is that, is that what they did is they pulled, reached up and tried to pull the standard down. Remember, God is perfectly just. And none of us is perfect, so how are we going to even begin to measure up to the requirements of perfect justice and righteousness and holiness? The only way in, in these men's minds that we could do that would be to lower the standard. And um, draw their own line. And where, they, where do they draw the line? Where do we draw the line? Well, we usually draw it right there. Right in front of our own feet. You don't have to be perfect to be a hypocrite. You just have to think you're better than everybody else or better than some people. I mean, I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not a sinner like that. Now, we would never do that, right? <laughs> we would never play the comparison game, right? Was this the situation here? Am I, am, I, am I spinning a yarn here or is that what was really going on in their hearts and minds? Well, look at, look at, what, look at what Jesus says to them. Because he basically, he says, in, 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 a, in effect, he says, okay, you want justice? Uh, 
Let's do justice with one caveat. The one who is without sin among you, let him be the first one to throw a stone. Have you noticed, I'm sure you've noticed this, when you've read and reread the gospel accounts, um, how people like the, the Pharisees and like the religious leaders in this story today, who uh, as a general rule lived very good lives, comparatively speaking, shut themselves off from the grace and mercy of God. I've read through the gospel accounts more times than I can possibly count, and I can remember no instance from the life of Jesus where he gives mercy to someone who didn't think they needed it. And I can think of no instance, not absolutely one, where he withheld mercy from anyone who felt they needed it. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Matthew 18 comes, um, or in Luke 18, so he comes to mind as a sort of a very vivid depiction of that reality. And we, there is a, a day 59 in the devotional readings is on that passage. But I want to say to you, if we do not receive God's mercy, we have no one to blame but ourselves. If you do not receive mercy from God, you have no one to blame for that but yourself. Because Jesus never withholds mercy from someone who recognizes their need of that mercy and seeks him for it. Likewise, I can find no instance in Scripture where he ever gave mercy to someone who thought they just really didn't need it. Here in this story of this, this woman, they were so sure that they had him because it's impossible to be both merciful and just at the same time, isn't it? We caught her in the very act. The law says she should be stoned. What do you say? They saw no need for mercy from God in their own lives, so why would they feel any need to show mercy or extend mercy to anyone else? You know, there's a lot of talk these days about us all being in the same boat. I can assure you that every single one of us needs the mercy of God. And yet, we don't see a whole lot of mercy being extended in public discourse in our day, do we? We do see a lot of blaming and shaming. We relish the news reports about those horrible people out there because they make us feel better about ourselves because all of us are tending to draw the line our own line, 
satisfying our own sense of self-righteousness. Can mercy and justice exist together? How is that even possible? That would be some kind of miracle, wouldn't it? And that's exactly what the life of Jesus is. The greatest of miracles. There's a lot of speculation about what Jesus wrote in the sand. And nobody knows. Because we're not told. So whatever you might hear about what Jesus wrote in the sand, it is speculation. I don't, I don't know. I've heard some, some pretty good guesses, but the reality is that we don't know what he wrote. So I, I guess I take from that we don't need to know. But it says that one by one, they dropped their stones and walked away from the eldest to the youngest. And that is, that has to be significant. What, what would the significance of that be? The significance of the order of that? Again, it would be kind of speculative. But I, I think that life has a way of humbling us. And if we're willing to learn life lessons, I think maybe the most important lesson we'll ever learn could be the need for us to humble ourselves and to acknowledge the truth about ourselves for what it is. Not trying to pull the perfect law of God down to where I think I might be able to attain to it, but rather allowing God's perfect law to judge me and to show me for what I am so that I can then cast myself on the mercy of God and in the process become gracious myself because that's a really, really important part of all this. The scriptures are emphatic everywhere. Jesus talked about this all the time. We're going to be talking next week about forgiveness. Forgiveness has been called the most aggressive act of love there is. But over and over and over again, Jesus taught that our capacity to extend mercy is directly tied irrevocably to our willingness to humble ourselves and receive mercy. And if we do not show mercy, it's just evidence that we haven't really received it. I just want to uh, share a scripture with you. We're going, to get, we're going to get back to John 8 and the end of the story here in a moment. But, but take a look with me. Just, just take a look at this, this passage from Romans 3. It's, it's one of the most um, fullest and richest expressions of the gospel in all of scripture. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26, it says... 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ satisfied the justice of God while extending the mercy of God to you and to me. In John chapter 8, as the story concludes, it says Jesus stands back up. Remember, he had been writing on, on the ground, and, and uh, when they pushed the issue, he said, okay, whoever's without sin among you, cast the first stone. And it says that they, uh, G- then Jesus stooped back down and started to write in the sand again. I'd love to know why. Someday I'm going to know why, what he wrote. But I know all, all it says there, it says, and they went out from the eldest to the youngest, one by one, they left. And when Jesus stood up, it was just him and this woman. And he spoke to her and he said, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And there it is right there, folks. That's grace and truth right there. You know, the world's approach is to fudge the truth, but Jesus is full of grace and truth. He never failed to identify evil or sin for, or error for what it, what, it, what it was or what it is. Uh, woe to those, the scripture says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is not a compromise. This is not Jesus compromising. What she did was wrong and deserved condemnation. What he did was wrong and deserved condemnation. It was sinful and it was hurtful to herself and to others. But all those other guys had all done similar things. Maybe not the exact same things, but similar things. Things deserving of condemnation. And so they're all gone now and... uh, That left no one to stand as a witness to condemn this woman. If you think about this as a holding court, which is how they wanted it to seem, well then court is still in session. But suddenly there's no one to accuse her. There's no witnesses. 
Except for Jesus, that is. Who was the only one qualified to condemn her? Because he was and is the one standing in the room without sin. Not only that, but he knew all the details of this woman's life, all of the details that those guys thought in their arrogance that they knew, but they were actually ignorant of. He knew it all through and through perfectly. He was the only one who could have rightly condemned her. That's one thing. But Jesus was also consequently the only one who could ultimately have mercy on her because he was the only one without sin and he's the only one who would eventually give his life as a payment for her sin and for yours and for mine. And all of this points us to the cross of Jesus because if we want to see the spectacle of the mystery of God's perfect justice and his endless mercy on full display, that's where we see it, the cross of Jesus Christ. What is this gospel, this good news that God would give his life for us? It doesn't get any bigger than that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was God's self-sacrificing love that saves us. It takes away our sins, obliterates them. As far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our sin from us. How far is that? That's infinite. That's the infinite justice and mercy of Jesus. The greatest, absolutely greatest sacrifice of love the world has ever seen or ever will see. Uh, Just one more scripture uh, as we get ready to to end here, but it's John chapter three. I quoted a little bit of it a a moment ago. John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Justice and mercy. I don't know if that resolves the tension between the two because some things exist in tension. Some things in life exist in in tension, but I, I know two things this morning. I know that every single one of us is accountable to God a holy and righteous and perfect God for our sin and for our shortcomings. And the second thing I know for sure is that Scripture says, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast one away. 
there is not a single instance that I'm aware of where somebody received mercy from Jesus when they thought they didn't when they thought they didn't need it. Nor is there a single instance that I know of where Jesus withheld mercy from anyone who knew and recognized and confessed and humbled himself before him and asked for mercy. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So you and I both get mercy. Because Jesus took our judgment. And now you and I can extend mercy. We don't have to worry about getting our justice. That's totally up to Jesus. And we're going to be talking about forgiveness next week. But I wonder if you might stand with me uh, this morning as we close uh, in prayer. I don't know how you relate to this woman. I don't know if you look down on her. I don't know if you feel like her. But she's there as a picture of you and me. What does the fact that she was a woman and not a man mean? Doesn't really mean anything. She was a human being. So I have a question for you. We've been talking about justice and mercy. We're going to talk about humility. And I think you can see how these things relate. But I have a question for you. Have you humbled yourself before a holy God and acknowledged your sin and your need for his mercy and forgiveness? Because if you have, you have it. Scripture guarantees that. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've done. But if you haven't done that, will you? His arms are open wide. He says, anyone who comes to me, I will not turn one away. You come to him. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your accountability to him and his perfect justice and righteousness and holiness and then cast yourself on the mercy of God because you have Jesus as a guarantee of that mercy to you and to me. Will you do that? If you haven't, if you're watching online or if you're here in the room, it really doesn't matter because the Spirit of God is everywhere.
Pray with me. Will you do that? Lord, I thank you for everyone and each one listening this morning. And I think this morning, Lord, of your great mercy and, and our great need. I pray you would reveal that you would expose our hearts. Allow none of us to, to continue in, in, in a blind ignorance and, and pride and, and, and deception of thinking that we don't need your mercy. That we in somehow, somehow, some way uh, measure up simply because we maybe think we haven't done as bad as somebody else. Lord, show us uh, our need. Show us our need for you, Lord. Show those who maybe, Lord, have never taken that step. They've never humbled themselves before you, Jesus. I pray that they would do that right now in their hearts, Lord. If, you're, if you want to receive the mercy of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins today, I encourage you just to pray and call out to him in, the, in your heart right now and just say, Lord, I am that woman. And I need your forgiveness and your mercy in my life. And I, I ask for it. I'm coming and I'm asking, Lord, that you would forgive my sin. Fill my heart with love and mercy for your glory. I thank you for taking my judgment on yourself on that cross. Help me, Lord, to live fully and freely for you. And I thank you with all my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.